0: The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900CHML.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website andyanddon.com there you can listen to old archive shows as well ask a question via the listener inquiry button good morning gentlemen good to see you
2: good morning good morning scott hi
3: don hey andy
1: lots of chatter this week about vaccinations and what we have what we don't have shortages of vaccination and such what does that do to the markets what does that do to the economy
3: Well, shortages haven't done anything so far. Um, It could delay the economy a bit, but generally speaking, the markets are looking uh, a year out anyway. And so, yeah, it it would have some effect on the kind of the opening of the economy a little bit. But really, the markets have not been uh, too jittery about it so far. So uh, probably because they're thinking past that and knowing that there's bright skies ahead. And based on that, they think okay, they expect the market, the you know, the economy to open up again.
1: Sooner or later, we'll get back to uh, some sort of normal. But I know you want to touch on the markets to start today.
3: Absolutely, and it's interesting. We uh, in the past week we did a client event, Andy and I. It was uh, Jeremy Siegel was speaking on behalf of IG Wealth Management, and he basically he's written a book, a number of books actually, on, but the one that's very well known is Stocks for the Long Run, and he goes back literally from 1802 to 2020 to see what the markets have done, and, and really, you know, how optimistic you sh- should you be, or, or maybe you shouldn't be. So before I kind of get into that, let's kind of go through some of the definitions, because I know when you're speaking to people and you start the rhyming off earnings per share and G, you know, PE ratios and things like that, usually it's like, okay, unless you're in this business, a lot of people are wondering what does that exactly mean. So first of all, Let's just go through a few of those. And earnings per share is simply the earnings of a company divided by the number of shares available. And uh, that's, that's basically it. Very simple there. Uh, gross domestic product. It is the, that's one that's quoted a lot by economists, and it kind of gives an idea of just how the economy is growing or not growing. And uh, that is the sum of all the goods and services produced across an economy. So if there was two negative quarters, So there's negative growth for two quarters in a row. That is the definition of a recession. So just in case anybody's saying, okay, well, we're in a recession. Well, not really, uh, but we were actually, uh, we did have a a bear market, which is a little different. A bear market is not necessarily a recession. That just means the market dropped greater than 20%. So then there's this one that is quoted all the time called the price-to-earnings ratio. Now, what they do there is they simply look at whatever the share price is. So when you look in the paper or, uh, you know, on your app or what have you, and you see Royal Bank stock at $100 per share, so that's the price, and you divide that by the earnings, and that gives you the P-E ratio. And the lower the number, generally the better the value the stock is. Um, Like right now, for example, a Tesla stock is trading above 1,600 P-E ratio. Put it in perspective, Normally, the PE ratios across the board are around 20. Okay, so Tesla is way above, so they're expecting massive growth. And if they don't get that kind of growth, you'll see the share price drop dramatically. Um,
1: Wasn't it? uh, Can I ask a question, Don? I think someone said to me, I don't know if it was you guys or not, that if you're interested in buying Tesla, I'd forget about the car and just buy the stock.
3: Well, that certainly was the case a year ago. You could have got seven <laughs> cars. If you bought the stock a year ago, you could have bought at least six cars, uh, cashed the stock in a year later and bought six of them. Um, but who knows going forward? That was certainly the case last year. And most experts uh, think can't see that continuing, especially with so much competition with um, General Motors, Volkswagen. You're seeing a lot of Ford, all these others coming in with electric vehicles. And we'll see. Um but based on that P/E ratio, it looks very expensive. By the way, the S and P I 5- can see. I can see Scott in a new Ford electric Mustang. Yeah, that yeah. would look great. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Andy. <laughs> you you can drive it up to my driveway anytime you feel sure. need. I'll take you for the first ride in it.
3: I think it's the low fifties, low hundred, low fifty thousand. There you go. Yes. Yeah, right in your wheelhouse.
1: You and Don can fight over who gets to ride in the front seat.
3: All right, <laughs> shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. So the S&P five hundred, that is simply a measurement and it's kind of looked at the widely regarded as the best gauge of the large cap US equities. So it's the five hundred largest US publicly traded companies. And so you got and it's and it's weighted based on the size of the company. So that's that's really a great benchmark to see how your performance if you have US stocks, how they're comparing to the index, and that's the index is the S P five hundred. Then they each of them have theirs. There's a M S CI, EFI index, which is basically a European, um, includes includes Europe, Australia, and Japan. There's a MSCI emerging markets, which then it takes across 23 emerging market countries. And so each of these, we have our own here in Canada, which is the S&P TSX, and that's our Toronto stock market. So those are all the different indexes. And then finally, real returns. And this is the one that is quite often quoted and and people say well what's a real return versus just I hear what the return is well the real return is whatever the return is less inflation and so if inflation's 5% and you got 4% you actually had a negative 1% return real rate of return but obviously if you had a 5% return and inflation was only 1% you had a 4% real rate of return so those are all the kind of the definitions and so how does that really work when you look at the long term? And this is where Jeremy Siegel came in and looked at the stock market and the bond market and treasury bills, even gold, and say, okay, well, how's the performance been since eighteen oh two? Well, if you had a dollar of gold back in eighteen oh two, it would be worth four dollars and fifty two cents now, in real terms, after inflation. So not a great performance, but it, at least it kept pace. And there's an old saying that an ounce of gold can buy a really nice man suit. Well, right now with the price of gold that I think is around $1,800, and now that's one heck of a nice suit, but still it is in the possibility of, of getting that kind of suit. Or a nice tuxedo. Oh, and in Andy's case, a tuxedo. You got dressed to the nines for our virtual meeting today.
1: You know, we didn't even share that with the listeners, did we? We should have right off the top. Don and I are in our PJs. Andy's wearing a tuxedo.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. trying to class this place up a little.
1: We missed the memo.
3: Uh, yeah, obviously. Uh, but, you know, it pays the blues out, Andy. Pardon me? The paisley blue tuxedos are no longer in style. <laughs> oh, good point. Good point.
1: Yeah, is that from a wedding in like the late 1970s or?
3: <laughs> you like the ruffles? <laughs> so then, if you go to T bills, okay, those are treasury bills. It would be like 90 day deposits, very short term. Your dollar invested 218 years ago would be worth 262 dollars after inflation. So at least you know a little bit better than gold, to be honest. Um, gold's done a lot better lately. But again, people look so short-term often, we it's hard to think that long-term. Then you get into long-term government bonds. Not a whole lot different than T-bills, um, but in the last 20 or 30 years, the interest rates have been dropping basically since the 80s. And so you've seen an uptick. So your dollar invested is now worth $2,392, quite a bit better. So in real performance, T-bills averaged 2.6% government bonds average 3.6%, so about 1% difference, which makes sense because those are longer term, there would be a 10-year or 20-year bond. Then you get to stocks, and your dollar invested 218 years ago would be worth $1,929,736 for a real rate of return of 6.8%. So, what a difference that makes. And again, real estate would actually fall between the bonds and the stocks. It, is, it does better than bonds, but it doesn't do as, as good as, as stocks. And certainly right now, it's hard to convince anybody of that because we're kind of in a hot market right now. But a lot of that has to do with interest rates right now. I, I've, we just uh, talked to somebody, uh, one of our clients got a 1.65 five-year mortgage last week through Investors Group here. And it's... Uh, you know, with money that cheap to borrow, you can see why housing prices continue to rise. So then they look at, okay, what happened last year? We had a pandemic. How did the market go up? It was kind of a win against a lot of people's predictions. And the biggest reason is because the government threw a ton of money into it, particularly the U.S. government. It, uh, they actually increased the M1 money supply by 40%. And the money, m1 money supply is kind of money on hand that would be checking accounts currency just loose currency and the m2 money supply includes near liquid investments a savings account believe it or not is not included in the m1 it's part of the m2 even though you can cash it tomorrow mutual funds are in the m2 uh treasury bills so it's it's a little bit broader market and it's up 25% year after year, uh, year, in one year. So absolute massive amount of liquidity was added to the markets. And so that money didn't end up in the coffers of corporations. It was, it, that's gone right to the individuals. And those individuals were out saving it, um, getting ready in case uh, they ran out of money, they lost their job, or helping out the economy. So this is what actually kept the markets going. So the PE ratios, um, they, they've been on a bit of a, a high, so the price earnings ratios has averaged 15 percent uh, sorry 15 times over the last 150 years. they're now running about 22. Now Jeremy Siegel looking at 20 being kind of the new normal because there's, it's been slowly rising uh, to20 for quite a long time now. And so not really thinking that 15, 15 or 16, what used to be the average for 200 years, would probably be considered cheap now. So 20 is kind of the new normal. So 22 is a little on the pricey side, but not too bad. So some people say, well, the market's overvalued. Yeah, maybe a little bit. But according to Jeremy Siegel, not that bad. But really, when it comes to you, the listeners there, I'm sure most of you are thinking, okay, well, that's all great, Don, but... Do I have enough money? How should I invest it? Should I be worried that I might run out of money? And most importantly, sh- what is the proper allocation of my money? And should I, like the old school of thought, was 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Is that still valid? And right after this break, we're going to go through it is that still valid or m- maybe we should change that now?
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Andy Lister, and Don Fox, looking uh, quite dapper. Well, one of them is anyway. Uh, I'll let you decide who's in the tuxedo here. IG Private Wealth Management, call now, 905-529-7165, or check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old shows as well as ask a question via the listener inquiry button. We're going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back.
0: You are listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified. The guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message 905 529 7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the Lister Inquiry button as well as listen to old archive shows. Uh, We were talking about the markets. Don, you want to finish off with that before we uh, get into living common law in Ontario?
3: Sure. And uh, really, we're just talking about what is the proper allocation going forward with interest rates so low, you know, with bond rates, literally negative 1% currently in the real rate of return. So after inflation, you actually have less money than you started with at the beginning of the year. So right now, Bonds may not be the best place to put your money. So the, he actually did a study going back from, oh, 1958. I apologize. No, he's going back. He, he went back from 1926 to 2019 and said, okay, let's say you had a million dollars and you wanted to take out 5% out of your 50000 out every year and, and have that go up with inflation throughout the time. Well, basically, if stocks average 5% and bonds average zero, you should have, you, you basically should be 100% stocks because you're literally pulling out 5% and the best chance of survival um, would be to have it 100% stocks. That's probably not the ru- wise thing. There's this rule of 4% that we often talk about that if you start with 4% withdrawal rate, so instead of taking out 50000 a year, you take out 40000 a year, that's a little bit more conservative. And if equities average 5% and real and the real bond rates are zero, what's the proper mix now? And it turns out the best chance of survival, so an 18.3% failure rate, or turn it the other way, of a 81.7% success rate is at exactly 75% equities, 25% bonds. So the pendulum has swung to go a little heavier in equities, I know you got a, a ups and downs of the market, but with that in mind, there's a the real thing you should be concerned about. Will I run out of money? What's the best chance of not running out of money in the long run over a 30-year period? This is, by the way, a 30 year retirement. So if you retired at 65 till 95 years old, you would have almost an 82% chance of success by having a 75% 75% of your funds in equities. So in Conclusion: Basically, what Jeremy Siegel was saying is that the liquidity by the federal government by it, will definitely spark a strong, strong economy and continue to rise. Have a rising stock market in 2021. Value stocks, no, those are those safer stocks like the banks, etc. We've talked about before. Will likely outperform growth stocks, and it's been a while. Growth stocks have been doing better than value stocks since 2013. So seven years they've been outperforming value and overall they generally just average about the same but they've been on a pretty good run and the difference between the two is massive right now in terms of returns so they expect the value stocks to pick up the federal keep the um, interest rates quite low but inflation will start to go up well above the two percent they figure because of so much money added to the economy and with this the bond yields will start to rise and this is going to end the 40-year bull run in bonds. So this is the very first time Jeremy Siegel says, terrible time to buy bonds. He says, you know what, you go short-term because if interest rates start to rise, your bonds are going to go down. And so there. in light of this pandemic, there's going to be some permanent changes. Technic, technology has definitely enhanced things, as we're doing this show right now all virtually. So that's part of it. Um, commercial, commercial real estate will... will struggle because people will not be returning back to offices. Business travel will be permanently down. On the other hand, you will see a huge appetite for people to travel again, and there'll be a lot of just fun travel picking up. Uh, Productivity will rise, and profit margins will expand because of this technology, really because of the pandemic. So this is kind of relearned we 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 basically taught ourselves over the year how to live with this and this has actually increased our productivity which in turn has helped the stock markets and with the democrats taking over the senate there will be some higher taxes but spending will also increase so basically and also the certainty of having a, a more a less erratic president per se will keep things uh, a little more confidence in the market so he thinks overall having a democratic government will be helpful to the markets so that's kind of the uh cole's notes of uh uh over an hour presentation that we listened to and hope that uh, maybe helped you in the future
2: john i just uh I, i was thinking about the presentation and even the feedback i got from clients who said it was excellent and uh you know one thing i took away sorry really the next the next couple of years are really the sweet spot for stocks and it just reinforces that um Being invested and being invested for the long term in stocks is probably the place that will provide the most reward in in the foreseeable future, for sure. So I'm just going to switch topics a little bit here. And I wanted to, uh, as Scott mentioned, chat about living common law in Ontario. And, you know, for many, many parents, it's probably that first time when your adult child decides that uh, they're going to move into a more serious level or stage of a relationship and decide to move in with with, uh, a partner. And um, so in Ontario, about, and this is on the last consensus, I think it was about four years ago, but 57.3% of us are married, and uh, 8.1% of those are are in a common law relationship. So uh, about 15% of those that are um, uh, considered married uh, are common law. And common law rules fall under provincial laws, they're not federal. And uh, so it also includes opposite sex and same sex couples, all under the same common law rules for Ontario. So when you think about tax planning for a common law relationship, it's in general, you wonder, is it the same as married? And it can be the same as married if you're been in a conjugal relationship. Scott, you know what a conjugal relationship is, right? That's like uh, what you and Andy have. Yeah, yeah. Or sorry, you and Don have. For at least 12 months, right? So you have to have been in a conjugal relationship for at least 12 months, or it could be less than 12 months if you had a child together, which you're raising. So therefore, you must file when you file your tax returns in terms of tax planning as common laws. You have to tick off common law or you'll be subject to penalties. Now, a lot of times this is sort of a a strategy of convenience that people use when they're filing their tax returns. Sometimes they're common law and sometimes there aren't because there's benefits and there's drawbacks on the tax system. Um, but if you do not file as common law, you could either face penalties or you could be denied things like Canada pension plan or survivor benefits from a pension. So they could easily just look back on your tax return and say, well, you didn't tick off common law last year. So maybe you, were you actually common law? I think you'd have to provide additional evidence in case someone died or, um, under that scenario. So what's the benefits of, um, Uh, Being common law, well, you get to split pensions, certain pension income you can split with your common law partner, and you can also transfer unused tax credits as well. Maybe the disadvantage is, and this is why some people don't tick off that common law box, is that you might lose something like the eligible dependent credit. So if you have a a child or a young adult that you're claiming as a credit, that helps reduce your taxes as filing as an individual, or you might lose social assistance benefits, for example, guaranteed income supplement or the GST tax credit, which is calculated based on income from both partners when you're in a common law relationship. So one of the family law issues, and um, you know, in case of a marriage breakdown or sorry, splitting up or a death, um, in the case of family property, uh, there is no right of division of property for the common law partner. Again, I'll say that again, there is no right for a division of property uh, for a common-law partner if there is a breakdown of the relationship. As far as pensions, generally common-law partners are entitled to pension benefits and uh, if, in case of a death. Um, and the other thing that uh, a common-law partner can approach is something called an unjust enrichment. And so in case of a breakdown of the relationship, you can apply or file a lawsuit for an unjust enrichment. And basically this would be an an example of this where you're trying to get money back from that former partner. Let's say you contributed mortgage payments to the uh, property that the other partner owned. So in theory, you've you've given them money to help uh, pay down that mortgage so you could could ask for that back. But it involves a lawsuit, it can be expensive, it's certainly the, the outcome could be uncertain and it really comes back to the need to getting a cohabitation agreement if you're living in a common law relationship. Uh, what about joint property? So if you bought something together, it might be a, maybe or you've created like a joint bank account or a joint investment. Generally, uh, joint property would be shared upon separation or death. Um, what about something like spousal support in case of a, a, a relationship breakdown? Well, if you've cohabitated for at least in that conjugal relationship for three years, uh, or less if you had a child together, then you can be entitled to spells of support. Uh, In terms of child support, uh, even if you have a non-biological dependent, so you've moved in with a partner and they have uh, a dependent child, not yours, uh, you may be required to pay support until that child reaches adulthood, uh, living in a common law relationship and then uh you know cohabitation agreements are obviously the route to go and that's what we recommend to people but they can't you can't opt out of everything for example child support is one of those one of those items you can't sort of get someone to sign off on being eligible for that now when it comes to estate planning uh on the death of of a partner um you know do you have the right to inherit and the first thing is is do they have a will and so many people that don't have a will Um, if if there is no will as a common law partner, you are entitled to nothing. Okay. Common law partner, person dies, no will, nothing. Um, you can again file a lawsuit under the dependents relief application. If you've been together for three years and, um, the court will take into consideration, you know, how much, and obviously there's time involved with the courts there and money again, but, um, the purpose, I guess, of this the real thing if you're in a common-law relationship is you need to make a will which includes your common-law partner. Uh, then we get into things like, let's talk about previous wills for a second. So if you have a previous will from a former uh, relationship, you were married before, and now you're in a common-law relationship, basically, and you haven't created a new will, then uh, that will is still valid. And conversely, when you get married, any previous wills are considered void immediately. So in essence, living common law means that your old will that you made with your previous spouse is uh, still valid. And if you die, your ex-spouse or ex-partner could end up with all the money and your new common law partner gets nothing. Um, So what about CPP survivor benefits? Yes, if you're in a common law relationship, for three years plus, or sorry, only one year. And this is where the, I think the numbers bounce around for people, and it's very difficult. There's these one-year uh, limitations and requirements, and there's three-year requirements. And generally, when it comes to taxation, uh, it, it, it tends to be those three, you know, those three-year type of rules. But um, uh, in the case of CPP survivor benefits, if you if your uh, common law partner dies and you've been together for one year. You will be entitled, generally, to the uh, survivor pension. Now, what about an employer pension plan? Let's say you were, um, you know, a teacher, you had a pension plan, and you now um, uh, uh, entered into a common law relationship and you've been together for at least a year. Then, generally, you can add your new common law partner, and they would receive a survivor pension from your uh, from your plan. So when you think about common law, I guess the key things to think about uh, and the advice that I should pass, you should pass on to your adult or your senior, depending on who's involved in that common law relationship, is write down the date you started living together. And this is critical because you may be required to uh, provide proof or evidence of that at some point in the future. And the next thing would be if you're considering getting married at a later date, then you should contemplate your will that in your will that you are thinking about getting married and the reason for that is that if you create a will and then you with your common law partner and uh, in in thinking about your common law partner but then you go and get married then that previous will is automatically voided but if in that will that you created you contemplated that marriage and you your lawyer can help you draft the appropriate words then um, uh, the will would still be valid. The next thing to think about in a common law situation is if you move to another jurisdiction. And so often we'll see a couple might, uh, maybe it's for a job or employment reasons, they move to another province or they move to another country. And literally, you know, so every time that you move to a different province or country, then the rules all change. So I'm talking about rules for Ontario And uh, because I said it's provincial, that every place you move to, there is uh, uh, a different set of rules. Um, And that brings us to another one, which would finally be the sort of property in another jurisdiction. So let's say you had a a condo in Florida, um, and uh, you're in a common law relationship with somebody, and uh, you have no will. When you die... Generally, that property, in this case, that Florida property, is going to be distributed based on the jurisdiction where the property is located. So what are the rules in Florida in terms of someone dying without a will? Well, that's how how that property is going to be distributed. Same thing could go if you've got a property, say, in B.C. or you've got a property in in Quebec. Uh, All of that in a different jurisdiction means that you're going to be dealing with a different set of rules. Now... When it comes to personal property, so this might be you know, not, not real property like a real estate, but in terms of personal property, you know, cars and furnishings and everything else, um, and even investments, uh, personal property would be distributed according to the jurisdiction that you die. So in this case, if you died in Ontario, then uh, your common law partner would benefit from the distribution based on our intestate laws here, meaning you have no will. But if you died in Florida, uh, your common law partner might be subject to the rules for division of that property as well based on the the local jurisdiction. So common law partners, we've got a a great article um, that we'd be happy to send out to somebody. So if you've got a a parent who's living common law now or you've got a, uh, a young adult that's living common law now, feel free to reach out for us and we'll send you out. It's, a, it's about a six-page um, summary of some of the ins and outs and uh, some strategies to deal with living law.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming back.
0: You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900CHML.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here, properly dressed. From IG Private Wealth Management, you can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. You can listen to old archive shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. We're talking about RESPs and some of the mistakes made.
3: Yes, and uh, I guess one of the mistakes is we have to uh, dress up a little better next time, Scott.
1: I know clearly. Uh, yeah,
3: we got to raise your game there, a bit, guys. Yeah,
1: Come clearly on. we're we're dragging that dragging down the average here, uh, Don.
3: <laughs> I have to say the pandemic's got the you know it's really uh, enlightened you there, Andy, and you're looking good, buddy. <laughs>
1: it's it's either that or Andy has some place to go very early this morning and very well dressed.
3: <laughs> Or he just came from somewhere late last night. That's
1: right. He just got in the
3: door. <laughs> uh, some of the mistakes uh, people make with RSPs, and this is actually a fairly common one, it's taking the deduction in the wrong year. And so, right now, if you were to put money into an R- RSP, and let's, you know, the first sixty days, you can actually use it for last year's, which would be 2020's tax year, or any year in the future. And this is the part a lot of people don't realize. It it just sits there that deduction, and it can be used any time. So a good a good example is if somebody were to inherit a hundred thousand dollars, and they say, you know what, I'm going to put that in my RSP. I've got you know over a hundred thousand dollars of RSP room, but let's say they only make say a hundred thousand dollars of earnings. It wouldn't make sense to claim it all in one year. In fact, you probably would want to put about twenty to twenty-five thousand each year just to get rid of the higher tax bracket, and you'd get a lot more bang for your your buck. You don't really want to save at the 20% bracket when you could be saving at the 43% bracket. So this happens a lot, and and it's great that people put the money into the RSP, but it's then which year do you claim it? And you may only claim a small amount in 2020, particularly with the pandemic, because some people's incomes would be lower last year, and this year they may just jump right back up and you'll be in a higher bracket, and possibly you may not even want to use it for 2021. You may want to use it for 2022. Uh, if that's the case, then there's an argument saying, well, maybe you should just put it in a tax-free savings account. But that's a different discussion. In fact, I had a, a client uh, just this past week that had $256,000 of RSP room. And we're going to be using up just the amount over his income. He's a fairly, he's a high-income earner, but uh, he, he can put in about 50000 away each year over the 220000 mark because he makes over... Over two hundred twenty thousand, and he'll save fifty three and a half percent every year. So anyway, talk to your financial advisor. Make sure you're claiming it properly. This is really important because you do have to pay tax on this money sometime. So you might as well save it the highest bracket and pay at the lowest bracket. Now, number two, withdrawing in, in drawing your RSPs to pay down debts—absolutely terrible idea. We do get the odd person do or asking about doing this. We try to avoid this at all costs. Personally, the tax you're going to pay on this often is going to be way more than the interest costs. And the way I look at it, the compounding effect of the RSP too. Not only are you, what you're taking out now it's no longer invested, and so that's going to continue to lose all the compounding effect. And if you're really in dire straits, the RSP is the last place you should be pulling money out. You, if you're going to go personally bankrupt, the RSP is creditor protected they cannot go after your RSPs. So if you had a million dollars in RSPs, you you could go personally bankrupt and you'd still have all your RSPs intact. So when you do come out of bankruptcy, you're still not starting from zero. So that's number two. Uh, number three is not waiting the three years to cash in the spousal RSP. There is a three-year attribution rule with, our, with spousal RSPs. And what a spousal RSP, and just quickly, is that let's say, you know, mrs smith makes a hundred thousand year and, and mr smith makes twenty so mrs smith puts the rsp in in her husband's name she's she gets a tax deduction but mr smith is the owner so the the actual rsp is in mr smith's name so that's a spousal rsp well if mr smith pulls those monies out he has to wait three years from the last contribution so in 2017 let's say You know, Mrs. Smith put ten thousand into a spousal RSP. Did the same in two thousand and eighteen, and did the same for two thousand and nineteen. So three years in a row, put ten thousand in. Two thousand and twenty, Mrs. Smith put it into her own RSP, and then two thousand and twenty-one, Mr. Smith cashed all the money in. Well, two thousand twenty-one would be one year. Two thousand twenty would be a second year, and two thousand and nineteen would have caught that ten years that ten thousand dollar contribution. So therefore ten thousand would have been added to Mrs. Smith's income. And where the person was likely trying to get all thirty thousand into Mr. Smith's income. So again, really careful when cashing in spousal RSPs. And finally, and number four, this one's probably the biggest, is procrastination. Just do it. If I had to say the Nike commercial, just do it. Uh, when it comes to saving money, we're seeing right now the savings rate is through the roof. As I mentioned in the last uh, last week's uh, show, the savings rate when the pandemic hit went from two to three percent in Canada to 27 percent, and it, it still is 16 percent in the in the third quarter of 2020. So people are saving money, but put it put it away, make it a more of a long-term saving. And if you did have a very good income last year, you're, you're best to uh, if you don't have the funds, borrow even if you have to, or as we've often talked about, add monthly.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message, they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165, and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back.
0: You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900CHML. We
1: are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now, 905-529-7165. They will return your call and check out the website at andyanddon.com. All right, the man in the tuxedo says we're going to talk about Latin words today. Does that have anything to do with how you dressed? Like, clearly the topic (laughs) dictates the attire?
2: There's nothing better than a tuxedo. I'm not sure about my red bow tie, but, you know, we can, can debate that.
1: And then a man who's speaking Latin? My goodness.
2: I know, Latin words. I, you know, as I was sort of going down the path this week about um, uh, different issues around uh, legal issues around whether it's common law or even um, your estate planning. I thought, uh, you know, you came across a a report that we that IG uh, Wealth Management had put out, and it was basically definitions of Latin words uh, that we might come across as we're analyzing somebody's will. And uh, as I opened it up, 56 pages of Latin words and definitions. So, I thought I would uh, filter that down to maybe some of the the three or four common ones. And one interesting one, which I want to start with, which uh, the word is called uh, adeemed or ademption. Uh, Ademption, not redemption, ademption. And ademption is, basically occurs when property gifted in a will is not in the estate's possession at the time of death. So let's do a little example here. We'll use the uh, Flintstones or Easy Family to remember. So... We'll start off with uh, Fred, who, um, who owns a red 1972 Pontiac Firebird. And Fred decides that he wants to give his red Firebird bird to Barney when he dies, and he puts that in his will. So, but at death, uh, uh, sorry, uh, um, prior to death, uh, Fred decides to sell the red Pontiac and buy a blue 1969 Cutlass Supreme. And later on, uh, when Fred dies, the question is, does Barney get the new blue car? And what do you think, Scott?
1: Wow. Um, I, I, I'm guessing because it's a different car, it doesn't, he doesn't get to get it. He doesn't get it.
2: That's correct. That's correct. This is where redemption comes into place. The property that was uh, gifted in the will is no longer in the estate's possession at the time of his death. Now let's let's uh, look at this a little bit further, though. Um, what happens if Barney dies before Fred? Now there's two scenarios here. So scenario one is that uh, Fred is um, uh, is still you know he Fred's alive and he decides to sell the red uh, pony the red Firebird and uh, buy the blue Cutlass. And uh, so now when he dies, and of course Barney had died first. Do you think Betty would get the car? No. Correct. So Fred had sold that sold that car, bought a new car, and uh, it was no longer that car was no longer in his will. Now let's say Fred had become incapacitated later on, and in fact he had dementia, and so Wilma said, "You know what? I can't. You know this this red uh, this red uh, Pontiac Firebird. Uh, Fred's never going to drive it anymore. I don't want it anymore." and betty as the power of attorney decides to sell the red firebird and now fred dies does barney get does barney get the value of the car or nothing nothing he gets the value of the car why and the reason he gets the value of the car is because it wasn't fred that sold the property it was a power of attorney mm who knew that the car was in the will to be given to Barney. So Barney would be entitled to a cash equivalent of what that car was sold for if the power of attorney had sold it. Hmm. And uh, so it's interesting how this word uh, ademption can come into play. Oftentimes people will leave you know, s- significant items or unique items to a friend or a family member, but only later on to discover that that item has been sold or has disappeared. So redemption comes into play when it comes to distributing uh, someone's uh, estate. The other one that I want to talk about, and we've talked about it before, are the Latin words per capita and per stirpes. And per capita literally is defined as per living head, and per stirpes is defined as per living branch. And so this means when you leave money through your estate and and you've declared that you want to leave it per capita, that means that your estate is divided among all the entitled that are entitled to it property equal shares. So if you had three siblings, three uh, brothers that you wanted to leave your money to and one of them died, well, there's only two living heads left. So they would each get an equal share of whatever's left. Now, if you had selected per stirpes and you named all three brothers, then it would be your, your brother who predeceased you. It'd be his living branch. So his, his children or your nieces and nephews that would inherit that as well. So that money stays down the living branch as well. The one thing that um, all of these declarations have in common, both per capita and per stirpes, is that neither of them makes any provisions for the surviving spouse of a deceased child. And so we're talking about um, the, 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 uh, the Flintstones. So... If Pebbles or Bam Bam were married, and but Pebbles or Bam Bam had died, their spouse would not receive anything under either of these declarations. Now, I just ran into this recently because I had a family who, who were, just redid their wills, and we talked about this clause, and they said, well, you know what, that's not right. Uh, our, daughter-in-law, our daughter-in-law has been instrumental in our family, and I would want uh, my son's share to go to her in case he passed away before us. So just something to think about when you're distributing distribution is that that spouse of your child would be left out if they predeceased you. And And we often hear this, yeah.
1: Just one more question about the Fred and Barney Cutlass and Firebird. Did those cars have a floor in them or did their feet show through the bottom? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, classic. I'm sorry.
2: Uh, I love it. Well, they're both great models, I think, uh, and I think they all uh, were built for speed, for sure. (laughs) Is that it? Oh, I had one, so I just wanted to talk about issue, and issue is a word used in all of our documents that describes our our children. And issue basically means descendants, and it's through all generations, whether born inside or outside of marriage— also those children that are legally adopted, and also those children that are conceived but not yet born yet, all count as our issue or descendants. There you go.
1: All right. Our Latin
2: words for today.
1: We have been planning your financial future, uh, one of them dressed in a tuxedo at this early hour of the morning. But, hey, that's where we are during a COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. Uh, we have been planning your financial future. Andy Lister, Don Fox here from IG Private Wealth Management, 905-529-7165. And check out the website at Andy and Don. Dot com. Thank you, gentlemen. And uh, we'll 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 promise to dress better next week. Uh, Andy, Absolutely. thank you. Okay, Thanks, sounds guys. Good, guys. See you guys. I'll, I'll hold you to that.
0: The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.